the deputy said, well, look at why didn't you call the lifeguard? They're right here. And Wagner said, we didn't call them because they're a public agency. And she might be fooling around on public boat. And she often does that. So the deputy turned around and looked at me and said, did you hear what he just said? And I said, yeah. So my thought was, immediately was, it's too bad the famous must die because, you know, because somebody might be embarrassed. Hello and welcome to Chapter 7 of Fatal Voyage, The Mysterious Death of Natalie Wood. I'm your host, Dylan Howard. The clip we just heard was from Roger Smith. He was the county supervising rescue boat captain at the time and was the only lifeguard on duty the night Natalie Wood died. He helped pull her lifeless body from the frigid Pacific Ocean. In this chapter... We'll take a closer look at the events the night of Natalie's last day alive from two of the men who were actually there. We'll also hear how at the time the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office determined that Natalie's death was caused by accidental drowning. We'll try to understand how they arrived at this decision and how they did it in record time. But first, after a tumultuous first day at sea, which ended with Natalie and the boat's captain, Dennis Deverne, spending the night on Avalon Harbour, a new day had broken. Here's Dennis Deverne. Natalie and Christopher, they were giggling and laughing on talking about one of these mudslide scenes in the movie that uh, covered them in mud, and they were laughing and talking about that, and it was completely normal. There was no Gucci goo thing between them. I mean, there was just honest, good fun laughing. And I think everything was straight up and honest. And RJ was just seeing the complete opposite of them having a good, positive, fun time. He was just building something up in his head. He wasn't seeing a good time there for him. So now the afternoon is coming about on that day. And um, now we move the boat down to the Isthmus, the other end of the island. And the only thing down at the other end of the island is one restaurant. And that's all there is. It is important to note here that this area of Catalina is starkly different than Avalon, where Natalie and Dennis spent the previous night. Avalon is a tourist destination and looks and feels more like a resort whereas the isthmus is secluded and remote. And Natalie says, I think me and Christopher are going to go into the restaurant for happy hour. And RJ was casting this fishing pole out there, you know, like doing a little fishing. And he says, OK, you guys go ahead and we'll, we'll meet you in there in a little bit. So they had a little water taxi service there and they came and picked Christopher and Natalie up and took them ashore. So... Me and RJ, we go into the restaurant and Christopher and Natalie, they're sitting at the bar and they're giggling and laughing and having a good time. And so we joined them and then we sat down to have dinner. We opened a couple bottles of wine at the table. I mean, everybody was having fun. And um, so then RJ says, now we're going back to the boat. We're going back to the boat now. So I thought, "Uh uh-oh, this is not sounding too good. It was almost sounding as scary as it was the day before. 
So, hey, he's the boss. He was in charge, you know. We load up in the dinghy, made sure everybody was on board, that little dinghy safe, especially Natalie, you know, because everybody's a little tipsy. We get back to the boat, and I thought, well, I think I'm going to put the kettle on because Natalie likes to have tea before she goes to bed. So I put on the tea. I light a candle on the table. I light a couple. They had these uh, little beeswax candles, and I open a bottle of wine, you know, because we're still going to have some wine. On the surface, it seemed as if tensions had eased. But had they really? The group had been drinking heavily in the hours before they returned to the Splendour. And as Dennis said, the partying continued once they were back on the boat. So we know at some point, Natalie retired to her room. Later, she was gone. According to Dennis and even RJ himself, that was around 11pm. Here's Marty Rooley. RJ didn't call for help until about 1.30 in the morning. And... That call was not for Coast Guard help. (laughs) He called the restaurant manager. Don Whiting, the restaurant manager, let Doug Bombard, the cove manager and owner of the restaurant, know what was going on. So Doug Bombard also started up one of the patrol boats, and he wanted to get Doug Oden involved, who is the harbor patrol. Doug Oden was acting harbour master that night. He went aboard the Splendour during the initial search for Natalie and spoke to RJ and Christopher. There was concern when I got there. Um, they, they had been drinking, but everybody knows that they had been drinking, so that's no big secret. And it was a little bit difficult to get information from them because the alcohol was interfering with our communications a bit. Uh, but uh, the main... Uh, overall feeling that I sensed there was just concern that uh, she was out in the dinghy somewhere and you know being in November and cold at night and she not being a very good boater and very comfortable on the water I had them concerned and that's where my concern started to grow more yeah it was very dark that night and if somebody would have washed ashore in a dinghy there's a lot of little places where they could wind up on a little tiny beach or in a little tiny alcove that would have no access out of it. There'd be a stiff, uh, a, a steep cliff right behind them with rocks on, on all the sides. So if somebody did wash into one of those little spots, they'd probably just stay there until they were discovered. So that's why we wanted to focus on looking into those tight little areas just to perhaps we saw, you know, a dinghy, which is very hard to see at night. And especially if the clothes were dark, which we didn't know. If there was somebody there, it'd be hard to spot them, especially with our minimal equipment that we had to search with. Nobody questioned RJ. The mission was to find Natalie. By this time, they had about seven different guys, you know, include no one went to sleep. And when the Coast Guard got there at 5 o'clock, they sent a diver underneath the boat to look for her. They could not find her. In our investigation, we uncovered a never-before-heard interview with the lifeguard on duty at the time, Roger Smith. It's staggering to note that he didn't get a call until hours after the initial search began. Here, he describes firsthand the events of those early morning hours. I answered the phone, that was Coast Guard Rescue Long Beach, and they said, we have Natalie Wagner missing for several hours, and the, the Harbor Patrol has been looking for 
did a water search underneath the Splendor, thinking that maybe she fell off the boat and drowned. I, I searched the underwater and I, I, I scanned the area briefly and, and the water was very clear. So I came up with nothing. Then Robert Wagner came on board the boat, my, the rescue boat, which was only about 200 feet from where his boat was actually moored. And so and we're asking him a question. He says, yeah, she just went out to retie a dinghy that was banging against the boat. She was kind of mad. She says, oh, okay, I'm going to retie the dinghy because it keeps banging the boat and I can't sleep. And so he says, we've had the shore boats and the harbor patrol go to every boat in the harbor, and we couldn't locate her. So I thought, well, if she's in the raft, you know, figuring that she's in the raft, she'd be blown up offshore. So we started patrolling all around offshore, and we came to a point which is called Blue Caverns Point. Anyways, we, I found the raft in this little cave, and not a real big cave, but uh, what, what I want to say, a crevasse. Here's Doug Oden. The dinghy, when he reported it, uh, he reported the engine down, not running, and the key was not turned on. So that was the only real information that he had from his initial observation. That made it a little more difficult because that threw a lot of questions in. Well, had she been in the dinghy? Did the dinghy drift off by itself? Would she have gone somewhere and got off and then it drifted away? There's a lot of things that popped into our heads once he found the dinghy with nobody in it. RJ claimed he didn't initially call the Coast Guard because he didn't want a media storm from the attention that her name would surely attract. But when the call was finally made, roughly three and a half hours prior to her discovery, rescuers figured Natalie would be found alive, adrift in the raft. All that, though, was not the case. And now we turn back to lifeguard Roger Smith. And uh, a helicopter that I called for to begin with, with Sheriff's helicopter, was coming up from Avalon, up the island, to get to the Isthmus to help us. And about... 200 yards away towards Avalon because the westerly wind would have picked up, you know, her and the raft by then and pushed it down towards Avalon because the wind switches outside. And they stopped and they hovered. And they said, hey, we think we see something here. And uh, so anyways, the Harbor Patrol boat with Doug Bombard on it went screaming over to it and, uh, where the helicopter was, and sure enough, she was just below the water. The Doug Bombard still pulled her out of the water, and he was holding her on the back, what they call a swim step, on the back of the boat. And I said, give her to me. No words were spoken. I laid her on the boat and declared her. And so we looked her over and we discovered that after we took her down jacket off, that she uh, had a nightgown, a long uh, nightgown that went all the way down to her ankles, and she had nothing on at, underneath it. So we, we looked her over and made sure that there was nothing else wrong. And then we have a disposable blanket that we put over them to uh, make sure that, you know, 
passport to the coroner's office. And she had this disposable blanket on her. And out of disrespect, I mean, nothing else, nothing else. I'd do it to anybody. And uh, she's laying there with this disposable yellow blanket on her. And uh, I thought Robert Wagner was going to come over and, and identify her. And uh, we know who she is, but it has to be identified, just procedure. And so, but no, he didn't. The skipper came over, that's ever. After the police and the people in the search found Natalie, one of the first things that the detectives said was, RJ, we're so sorry for your loss. And you know, oh, our hearts are out to you and this and that. And, you know, we'll get you and Christopher off the island. We'll have a helicopter come here and take you so you can go home and so you can mourn in your house and all this stuff. And But can you identify the body? Because it's, it's something that has to be done. He said, no, he said, I can't do that. He said, you'll have to get Dennis to do that. When RJ left the task of identifying Natalie to Dennis, it begs the question, why did he leave Catalina without seeing his wife one last time? Why would he do that? This was supposedly the love of his life. We're like almost a mile and a half away, and the skipper, Dennis Devlin, came all the way over. He was transported by, and uh, he walked up to the, where we had her laying, and I uncovered her face and said, yes, that's her. And uh, so I took all her, I had all her jewelry on in my hand. I just said, Here, here's all her jewelry, here you go. She still looked like she hadn't been gone dead very long. In fact, when I took off her rings on her hands, uh, her hands were still pliable, you know, so nothing had set in yet, no rigor mortis at all. And in her facial, she looked like she hadn't been dead very long. Typically, rigor mortis begins to set in around four hours after death, and cold water can slow that process even further. So if Roger Smith's account is accurate, there's a chance Natalie had survived in the water for quite some time prior to being found. If searches were called earlier, would Natalie have been found alive? The discovery of Natalie Wood's body was heartbreaking for all. And though the search for her was over, the search for answers was just beginning. Ms. Natalie Wood, a three-time Oscar-nominated actress known the world over, was found dead yesterday. She'd been with her husband, actor Robert Wagner, along with Christopher Walken. The news of Natalie Wood's death left a nation in shock, and no one more than Natalie's own family. Natalie's sister, Lana, remembers. That was just, in itself, a horrible night. Because I'm a sleeper. And... I was up all night. I could not go to sleep. I, it was bizarre. I finally gave up and went into the kitchen, and my mom was up. And so I would bring her over as often as I could because she was sort of alone. And um, I made tea, and we sat in the kitchen. And I finally, around 5 o'clock, started getting sleepy and went to bed. And that's the only time that I actually could go to sleep for some reason. And the next minute, the phone is ringing. And it's a friend of mine who I've known since elementary school. 
And she said, Hallie's found dead on Catalina Island. And I said, no, Sherry, she was not. I'm sure it's a mistake. I hung up the phone, went back to sleep. She rang again. She said, no, I'm not kidding you. She said, it's, I, I heard on the radio. I said, it's way you the radio. And she said, no, put on your television set. Put on the TV. Do the, and she was telling me the truth. But I, I, did, I couldn't believe it at first. I thought, no, it's somebody else. They've made a mistake. It's wrong. Nothing can happen to Natalie. I think I was in shock and disbelief. I, I was completely unaccepting, completely unaccepting. At just 43 years of age, Natalie Wood may have died exactly the way she had always feared she would, the way her mother warned and the fortune teller predicted many years before. RJ's questionable behaviour continued even after he left the scene. Without conducting a formal interview with the police, which is standard operating procedure, he immediately fled to his Beverly Hills enclave and lawyered up. The first official statement from the family came from RJ's attorney, who spoke to a reporter. Here are those remarks, which give the impression that the previous night's events were nothing out of the ordinary. The water apparently was very smooth. It was very, was like glass. And she liked, she liked going in the dinghy, so... Did she do it a lot at night? I don't know if she did it a lot, but she certainly didn't do it. It was nothing unusual. And of course, R.J. just thought she went down to bed. It was only when he went down there to look for her and realized she was gone that he then saw the dinghy was gone, and that's when he started looking. And then that statement grew into maybe she heard the dinghy banging on the rear of the boat and went out to secure the dinghy, slipped and fell. All of these different statements about the dinghy and Natalie going out to take care of the dinghy and quiet it, she would never have done that. She would have asked Dennis to do that. So... That's how these initial stories grew into the accounts of what happened to Natalie Wood. Less than 48 hours after Natalie's body had been discovered, the autopsy results were in. Chief Medical Examiner of the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office at the time, Dr Thomas Noguchi, determined that Natalie had died from an accidental drowning as she had tried to get on the dinghy that night. Noguchi also made it a point to state that Natalie's blood alcohol level was above the normal limit, inferring that this too could have contributed to Natalie's accidental slip into the water. Dr. Noguchi, what information did you base your account on that she fell in while trying to board the dinghy? Uh, this uh, uh, opinion was based on that uh, dinghy was tied to the with a rope, which was uh, untied. And uh, the examination reveals um, a scraping mark on the left side of the cheek without any evidence of a uh, foul prey or injury to explain the uh, person to be uh, unconscious. And uh, based on this, the uh, position where boat is found, and uh, remains floating, uh, totally consistent with the person who stepped, missed the step and uh, 
then unable to return to the She was apparently having wine, champagne, perhaps uh, uh, perhaps uh, seven, eight uh, glasses of wine. On December 3rd, Natalie was laid to rest at Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery during a star-studded funeral that included honorary pallbearers Laurence Olivier, Fred Astaire, Jean Kelly, Gregory Peck and even Frank Sinatra. Also in attendance, actress Jill St. John, who we'll hear more about in a later episode. It was on that same day that Natalie's sister Lana realised that rather than share in their family's grief, she and her side of the family were no longer family to RJ. After the funeral, we went to the house. I was just dazed. And then I suddenly said, where's RJ? And they said, oh, he's, he's upstairs. So I just turned around and walked upstairs and went into their bedroom. And that's when I said to him, what happened? What, how is this possible? What happened? And he said something like, you, I don't, there again, I don't know if he said, I'm sorry. Um, but he said, you, it was an accident, you've got to believe me. And then somebody grabbed me by the arm and said, just leave him alone. And led me back downstairs. It was so bizarre, all of it. He didn't get in touch with anybody. I mean, you know, me, my mom, Olga. Um, no, he didn't. Never. I didn't really have a relationship with RJ. And I think it would probably be hard to have me around. I'm sure I would be saying more and demanding to know more. And uh, obviously he was, you know, didn't want to do that. Yeah, he just, he just cut me out. With the exception of Natalie's daughters, the extent RJ went to separate himself from Natalie's side of the family is truly shocking. More on that later. By now, Natalie's accidental drowning was being accepted as fact by most, including the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. But there were others who believed Natalie's death was anything but an accident. And far from being crazed conspiracy theorists, they were people who had good reason to doubt the official version of events. According to various newspaper reports, including the LA Times, that were published in the days after Natalie's death, one couple claimed to be within earshot of the splendour on that fateful night. My name is Marilyn Wayne. The boat that I was on was moored next to the Wagners that Thanksgiving evening. And our windows on the boat were open so that we had the ability to hear clearly anything that went on. And at about 11 o'clock, John woke me up and said, do you hear somebody calling for help? And uh, I said, yes. And he said, go up on the deck and, and listen, and I'll call Harbor Patrol. Well, my son had a digital watch that we had just given him, so that's how we kept the time, minute by minute. And uh, I was up on the deck and heard a woman yelling, help me, somebody please help me, I'm drowning. And I would yell down to John, who was on the 
phone to Harbor Patrol, or trying to reach Harbor Patrol, he never did, uh, that what I was hearing. And meanwhile, we would continue to ask my son, what time is it? So we had a minute-by-minute history of the time frame. And the yelling went on from 5 after 11 until 11.25, and then it stopped. Uh, While I was on the deck, I was yelling, tell me where you are, I'll try and get you. And um, I said to John at least a dozen times, I'll jump in and swim around and see if I can find whoever it is. And of course, he pointed out to me how ridiculous that was, because certainly we would have both died of hypothermia. We were never able to get through to the harbor patrol. No one ever picked up, and we made John made several, several calls. I would say at least ten. You might be asking yourself a lot of questions about Marilyn's ear witness account. Had her ears played tricks on her that night? Why didn't she tell all this to the police? But that's just it. She tried. After the drowning on Sunday at 1 o'clock, John and I talked about what we should do. John called the police Monday seven times to report what we had heard and was never, uh, never had a return call. She did, however, hear from someone else with a message that would haunt her to this day. On the next fatal voyage. Three days later on Wednesday, I received a note, something to the effect of, if you want to stay healthy, keep your mouth shut. To all our listeners, I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank you so much from all of us on the Fatal Voyage team. We are extremely grateful for all your comments and continued feedback you're leaving us on Apple Podcasts. Your recommendations help us get the message out and are absolutely turning up the heat in this ongoing case. And just a reminder, make sure to subscribe for free so you don't miss any new episodes. The latest chapter drops every Friday. Fatal Voyage is executive produced and hosted by me, Dylan Howard, and American Media Incorporated. Executive producers also include Kelly Garner and Carolina Saavedra from Treefort. Editing, scoring and original music by Tom Monaghan. Additional editing by Eva Reistad. The series is mixed and engineered by Stephen Cologne. Make sure to subscribe to Fatal Voyage on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.